Welcome to another edition of One Bottle at a Time. This is Ronald Dorsey. I'm your host. We're here today at the Bedvine and Brew location in Brooklyn, New York with Mr. Michael Brooks. Hello, Mr. Brooks. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Ronald? Good. I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine in this uh, wonderful uh, outdoor atmosphere you have here for, uh, for wine lovers and beer lovers also at this particular location. Can you tell our audience the uh, wine that we're enjoying today for our One Bottle Podcast? So right now, we're starting off with an Italian rosé. It's called Chiretto Classico. And so basically, it's from the Bartolino region, Bartolino region of Veneto, Italy. So this is a rosé. It's got a little bit more like reddish salmon colors to it. Not like the Bourbon style. It's a little bit more reddish cherry or notes to this. So this is like drinking like a, a minery cherry. I mean, a minerally cherry. Okay, yeah, wonderful. I like, I like the taste. You have multiple locations for your, uh, for your Bedvine brand here in Brooklyn. So uh, as I mentioned, we're here at the Bed Vine and Brew, which is a location that uh, also serves beer. So if you can tell our audience a little bit about uh, your locations uh, here in Brooklyn. Yeah, so we basically got started in October 2011 with Bed Vine Wine. Uh, that's the first one we started to, is the wine store. And actually used to be located in the rooms behind the bar there is when we started. And, um, you know, we did very well. And um, over time, we decided that, you know, let's uh, try to expand our business. So we got involved in the craft beer thing because, you know, we're looking at the, the, the segment for beverages. And at the time when we started to do um, craft beer, decided to do craft beer, it was one of the fastest growing segments in the United States. And you can see right now it's, it's still grow, rapidly growing and it's become really saturated. But, um, you know, we wanted to bring craft beer to Bed-Stuy. And so we're like, you know, we'll take a risk and we'll try to do it. And when we first started doing construction on this place right here where we're sitting, Bedvine Brew, um, you know, it was going to be a retail location because we're like, you know, we're not built for a bar. We're going to do retail and stuff. Right. And so, you know, I've been having the wine store been open for a couple of years. This is like 2013. You know, people were coming in you know, looking at the construction and they were like, oh, yes, this is great. And I kept telling them, like, oh, this is going to be a nice bottle shop. You can come buy cheese, charcuterie, and beer. <laughs> and everyone kept looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, I want a place to drink. Everybody <laughs> kept saying the same thing over and over again. I want a place to drink. I want a place to drink. <laughs> and so we're like, okay. So during the middle of the construction, we kind of just changed the format and just turned it into a bar. So, you know, the area where we're going to have storage for cheese displays and stuff like that turned into the DJ booth. And, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> right. And uh, it's a really nice, uh, really nice area for that also, because I know I was here a couple of weeks ago and had a couple of, uh, couple of glasses of wine and ventured into the, uh, the dance area with a nice DJ, good music, nice vibe uh, for everybody. The music is, uh, you know, I believe the DJ played music from the current offerings to everything, maybe music from 30 years ago. So it's uh, very good for, for any crowd or anybody of any age that, that like to come here. So now once this particular location uh, that was initially supposed to be your wine store became the, uh, I like to call it the hangout. It's more like a nice neighborhood hangout because it's mm -hmm. very welcoming uh, for anyone that walks by the way that you have the, uh, the seating area outside uh, organized. So now how did you go from there to uh, actually opening the wine store? Diagonally, right across the street. So what happened was, you know, the wine store was just constant expansion because this neighborhood has just been growing. And, um, you know, as soon we outgrew 
um, the two spaces we're in the back. Because in this building here, we have three commercial spaces. So the first commercial space is where brew is, the bar. The wine store will start off with the middle commercial space. And um, where there was a juice bar next to us, the juice bar, which was Bush Doctor, she moved down on Tompkins and Gates. And so we just claimed her spot for the wine store. So the wine store expanded. You know, when we first started, we just had wine. Then we expanded to expand to wine and craft spirits. And, um, you know, the opportunity happened for us to move across the street. You know, there was a corner spot, was the bodega that went out of business. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't easy. I had to fight, like, hard to get us to get the landlord to give us the lease, but he finally <laughs> did. Right, right. And so last July, we moved the wine store across the street over there. And then um, also prior to that, in uh, 2014, we opened up a uh, craft cocktail bar called Bedvine Cocktail, which is right around the corner from here as well, too. So we have three locations in Bed-Stuy. So we've got Bedvine Wine, Bedvine Brew, and Bedvine Cocktail. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. And I've uh, had occasion to also visit the uh, cocktail location. And I uh, believe you have a uh, actually an outdoor back, backyard area at that yeah. location? Yeah, so the cocktail place has um, seating in the backyard. Um, you can fit a lot of people back there. And where Brew has seating in the front. So it's, it's, you get two different flavors. So here you get more of like an urban, jungle type of atmosphere. You can sit and drink and watch cars drive by. Or, <laughs> but you can also, you know, there's nice scenery. There's nice people watching here. Or you can go back and uh, cocktail and sit in the backyard and just be a little bit more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I really like that about the cocktail place. Now with the, uh, the cocktail place, do you have any uh, live music offerings at that particular location, or, or do you have them here at the brew location sometimes, or mostly just DJs? Mostly just DJs. The live music thing, I mean, on occasion we can do something like a special event, block party, and that type of stuff. But, you know, we're not really geared towards live music kind of thing because, you know, it's we don't have, like, a really big, huge space. So, like, mm. you know, the music can sometimes be you know, overwhelming to some people. So some people will come in and be like, oh, this is too much for me. I'm going somewhere else. So live is really, for, live music for us is really something better if we do it outside on a stage, mm. on a sidewalk or for like a block party. But in, inside, there's only been a few that have worked really well. We had a guy um, about a month ago, he came in, took the middle room and he had up a little stage and platform and he was like a one-man band mm. and that worked really well. Okay, like maybe something like with a guitarist... Or a keyboard by by itself, something like that. Yeah, something yeah, like yeah. That would yeah, work exactly. Okay, so now in your uh, in your wine adventure, what was the first wine that you had that that kind of uh, the one that knocked your socks off and took you on your journey as a wine lover? Well, it depends. There was a bunch of wines that I had that um, you know that really got me involved in the wine. Um, but I, I would say one of the most memorable wines I've had was my first time having a Chateauneuf du Pop. Mm. You know, <laughs> right, that good. really knocked my socks off. Okay. You know. Right. So now, that was one. That was that's one of my favorites also. So when you had that, was it? Uh, were you were you here in the U.S. the first time you had it? Or oh yeah, it was here. I had a Pagal actually. Okay. You know, Pagal's okay. a historic producer from uh, from the Rhone, and um, you know it was a 1994 vintage, and it was just so rustic it had like dark notes of berries mm. and 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 forest floor and, and rosemary and i was just like oh this is amazing right 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 yeah for me i guess uh, like I, i've mentioned it before my uh first uh, uh chateau nerf that i had to me i like to say it uh 
It had the, uh, the, 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 the power of a Bordeaux and the finesse of a Burgundy. For me, that, that's kind of what it does for me, and it's really, really, a, really a wonderful wine. So now, as a, uh, as a venter, I noticed that you have, uh, uh, in your store, you have some selections that, that's branded with your Bedmine brand. You know, I saw a couple in there. Can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the, the ones that you have branded for yourself and, and where, they're, where, they're, uh, where they're from? Yeah, so we have a bunch of different private labels. Um, right now, we don't, we, a lot of them actually aren't in stock. We sold through a lot of them. But so, for instance, our first pipe label we got was a uh, Pinot Noir blend from Portugal. Then we took a Sauvignon Blanc blend from Portugal, the Lisbon area, and then a rosé, right? It was like an effervescent rosé. Then we moved on to a Lambrusco, a semi-sweet Lambrusco from uh, Emilia Romana, Italy. Mm -hmm. um, and then we moved into private label uh, Rioja. So mm -hmm. we had we had a private label Tempranillo. Um, a Viorda and a Rosé from Rioja. And then we moved on to a private label Provence Rosé. And then we have a private label Prosecco. And we have a private label Shiraz from South Africa. Wow. Yeah. Quite, a, quite, a, quite a variety. Yeah, we have quite a, a variety. Pretty good variety. We also have Vino Verde and Vino Verde Rosé from, uh, from northern Portugal. Mm. And, um, you know, we also have some, we also buy barrels of bourbon and rye. Wow. So, you know, we have uh, right now we have a nice rye from Journeyman Distillery, which is based in Michigan. But we do buy, we change barrels. We buy barrels from Filibuster, you know, other, other distilleries. But we just have a barrel there of bourbon or rye, and we'll keep that. We'll go through that, you know, a couple months, and then we'll get a new barrel. Hmm. But we, we like keeping the private label things going on because I think it helps us, um, you know, promote um, our products, and especially when we do events and stuff like that. You know, all our block parties that we do, we do three block parties a year. You know, it's good to have those out there and, and people come in and they buy it and, you know, we have a hard time keeping them in stock. Cool, cool, cool. So now in, in the uh, process of, of getting these private labels, have you had the uh, uh, opportunity to actually travel to some of the uh, places where, where they actually source the fruit and, and go through the process? Absolutely. Um, I've been able to travel to Spain, Portugal, France, Italy. Um, Argentina, Chile. Um, hopefully soon I'll get a chance to get to South Africa. Um, and I want to hit up New Zealand and Australia as well. Okay. So now can you tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, specifically your visit to France or, or Portugal or, or Chile? It sounds very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your visit to Chile and what that was like? So what I'll say is I did Chile and Argentina on one trip. And, um, you know, Chile, when you go there, it's like you see it's all this brand new construction. Things are bustling and things are actually pricey. When you go mm. there, you're like, what's going on here? <laughs> what they, what's, why is it so expensive? I'm in Chile, right? So you figure, you know, a dollar go a long way there. Does not. Wow, wow. <laughs> and then you contrast that, right, where things are more pricey, things are newer and bustling. You go into Mendoza, uh, Argentina, and you can see that. You know, things are like almost similar to here where things are like becoming decrepit, you know, mm. being run down and, um, you know, things are just so inexpensive there for like for, you know, American dollar. It was a long it was a long ways there. Mm. Quite, um, a, quite a difference. Oh, it's a huge difference. I mean, for, give you a prime example. I was able to get a nice custom leather jacket made two days. 
Wow. For 200 bucks. <laughs> you can, the same jacket would be like 1500 in New York. Wow. It's crazy. So now when you were, when you were in Chile and Argentina, did you, did you have opportunity to enjoy the cuisine there? Absolutely. So, I mean, the cuisine there is definitely, um, you know, meat dominated. Mm. Um, you know, Chile, they have more seafood because they're on the coast. Um, but I, what I really enjoyed was that um, both in Chile and Argentina is like in the backyards of these homes, they have these brick ovens. And so they do everything. In them. They can do empanadas, steaks, corn, mm. vegetables, everything. And they do everything in these ovens. And it just adds such a great flavor and, and such like the food has just warmth and warmth and flavor to it. It's just amazing. Mm. I remember I had these uh, um, when I was in Argentina, Argentina, this guy made this um, corn empanadas. It was like corn and cheese. It was amazing. Mm. I still taste that to this day. And another thing too, they do is like they do their barbecues. They do them on the on the on the uh, on the ground there. So they'll have these like steaks through the ground, and they have coals just right there in the in dirt. And the, and the the meats will hang off the the sticks that are pinked into the ground, and they, mm. they get the heat comes from the coals indirectly. Mm. So a very uh, very rustic setting. Yeah. And, uh, and and you mentioned so most of the people in their homes they they prepare their meals in that way. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah, they have their brick ovens, or they or they do the the, the grilling of, with the with the sticks. I mean the sticks in the ground, with the coals in the ground and everything. Okay. It's, Wonderful, wonderful. So now, when you went to uh, the Mendoza region, did you have opportunity to visit any of the uh, of their famed uh, Malbec vineyards. Yeah, yeah. So we went um, a, a lot of, all over Mendoza. Mendoza is actually very large growing region. It's a massive. I mean, I, I think that if you were going to drive the Mendoza um, wine growing region, it would probably take you about six six to eight hours, I think, to mm. drive north to south. Wow. That's how big it is. Mm. And so the weather changes dramatically from the north and the south, you know. The north is a little bit more drier. The wines come out more minerally, I think. And then I think in the uh, in the south they're going to be more richer, you know, a little bit more fuller. I mean, not as not as acid and mineral driven as the as the ones in the north. The mm. north is, is has a drier climate, mm. Mm. but um, the the water source though comes from the Andes there, and um, you know, so that's uh, that's really the the lifeblood is the Andes Mountains over there for the for their for their wines, right? And I understand that they actually have some uh, some of the uh, uh, irrigation that they do is uh, from kind of historical uh, type native aqueducts that were built, and they still use them. Absolutely, right. and they they all come from the Andes Mountains, and um, you know the government regulates everything. So, you know, there's certain days of the week you're allowed to get water from from the aqueducts, and then there are the weeks that you don't. You know, they put a stop on it, whatever, and so. You know, you don't want to get caught messing with that. <laughs> but they um, they have a schedule, basically, for um, distributing water mm. evenly out there. Okay, good, good. So something that's always interested me is, uh, in, in my travels too, but just want to know, in your travels around the world, uh, enjoying wine, and, and especially in cities, when you go into hotels or restaurants and, and bars, how, uh, how uh, prevalent or prominent was the uh, American wines? In your travels, places where you go, did you see a lot of American wines, let's say, when you were in France or, or Italy? I will tell you this. <laughs> American wines in Europe and in South America are non-existent. Wow. <laughs> wow. And you may be able to find <laughs> uh, 
you might find some California wine or something like that. That's it. Mm. You know, you're not really, you're not, you're not getting that wine. That's why a lot of um, Europeans, when they come over here, um, you know, they're looking to do try American wines because all they drink is European wines. When right, right, Europe. right. Wow. Same thing, you know, people in, in South America, that's all they get is South American wines. They may be able to get some French wines, but for the most part, their wines down there are dominated by what's grown in that region. Wow. wow. So when they come to like New York, whatever like that, they want, they want the main thing they want really is, is bourbon, mm-hmm. bourbon, and, <laughs> and, and and like California wines right. or, or Oregon wines, you know. Right, right. Or sometimes right. he wants some New York State wines too, mm. but for the most part, they they really want the um, the bourbon is really in big demand for them. Right, you right. Know, they, wow. You know, I mean, they want something different than Four Roses, you know. Wow. So they kind of stick to their own local wines as opposed to. Uh, having the American, even the California, so so you didn't you you didn't even see a lot of California wines around uh, your, your your visits, especially in Europe. Wow, none. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see any. Like, you know, I guess you you could go to, you know, maybe a high end restaurant. And they might have some stuff on there, but the places I went to, I don't recall seeing any California wines or anything out there. I, I think I went to a store and I think I might have found a couple, but there's not much. Um, I don't know if there's a market over there for it, or maybe the, maybe the taxes are too high or something. I don't know. Wow, wow, wow! That's that's something to hear. I would imagine that, like 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 you said, probably in some of your uh, maybe some of your more upscale uh, restaurants and hotels, they probably would have a good a good selection of uh, of American wines along with their other domestic products. Yeah, I think it's probably cost prohibitive, just because mm. if you go to Europe and you you get wines there, you know you can buy wines for like a bottle of wine for like 10 euros in a restaurant so like that is not happening over here (laughs) you're not not getting a bottle of wine for ten dollars at a restaurant in in the united states that just ain't happening so you buy a bottle of wine here it's definitely going to be a a significant markup (laughs) oh yeah yeah i mean you're looking at it here a bottle of wine is going to be between thirty dollars and up right so right 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 well Obviously, more than that in a nice restaurant, it's gonna right. But yeah. I'm just saying, minimum, minimum right, you, right, you're right. gonna be paying is at least thirty dollars enough, and that's being very modest, you know. Wow, wow, that's that's so that's amazing. Yeah, so the wines are just it's just a different um, structure over there. You know, the wines in Europe, I think they're just so much more reasonable. Like, I think it's probably something to do with the taxes, but uh, you know, it's just you know, it's, it's not the same as is over here. You know, over here, you know good quality you're going to pay a lot you know especially in a restaurant mm. where there i think there's there's really not much difference for buying the retail or in a restaurant over there i didn't see that big of a difference not not much of a difference no no not a, not in europe here there's definitely a huge difference but they're not it's not it's so mm. oh wow sounds wonderful okay so uh we're going to take a little break and uh we'll be back in a second this is one bottle at a time and today we're with mr michael brooks from bedvine we'll be right back today's podcast is brought to you by bedvine located in brooklyn new york they have a wine store for all your imported and domestic needs with the wonderful wine bar with craft beers right across the street and if you enjoy cocktails they have a third location nearby bedvine make it part of your new york wine experience Okay, we're back. This is uh, Ronald Dorsey of uh, One Bottle at a Time, and uh, we're here today with Mr. Michael Brooks of Bedvine in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, specifically the uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn. 
We want to talk a little bit about uh, how you got into the business and uh, maybe uh, as a young man, you know, some, some things you were doing in terms of school and your education and, and what led you to, to this business. Sure, definitely. So what I would say is um, my background school-wise I, I did was marketing. Um, one of the things that I always wanted to be was like, okay, I wanted to be an executive of a Fortune 500 company. So one of the things I looked at, you know, when I was in high school, I was like, okay, we're, what's the background for most of these people? And most of them even had a background in sales, marketing, or, you know, being an, an attorney. Mm. So I was like, all right, cool. So, you know, the marketing and sales thing really, you know, I had a good skill set for that. And, you know, the, the legal thing was kind of like, eh. I don't want to get involved in that stuff. That's like, <laughs> I don't want to be involved in splitting hairs. So I'm like, all right, I, I can do the sales and marketing thing. So that was my focus on that. And um, so, you know, I got into uh, into the city. I moved I'm from upstate New York, moved down to the city in 2002. Um, you know, at the time I was working for a pharmaceutical company and took a um, big promotion. And so I got relocated to uh, New York City. And... Um, and what I'll say is that, you know, coming down here in the city was uh, from upstate New York was eye-opening, right? It was mm -hmm. amazing. I was like, damn, every day I'm waking up and I'm pinching myself. I'm so now where, where did you, uh, uh, in upstate New York, where did you grow up at? In so I grew up in Rochester, New okay. York. I went to school in Buffalo, New York, and I did pharmaceutical sales in Syracuse, New York. Mm. And then I, you know, got relocated to Manhattan. So I was staying in Manhattan for a few years. And um, so basically, you know, I was in the pharma industry and I moved around to different departments and stuff like that. You know, operations, marketing, uh, training and, and um, you know, analytics and that type of stuff. And so, you know, I went I to preach the point where I reached a glass ceiling. I'm like, OK, you know, I, I was like, I want to be an executive. Like, can I get it? You know, can I get put into the, the path of being executive? Mm -hmm. And they just told me, like, mm. We don't think you're executive material. <laughs> nah. You're not executive material. Right. right. So I'm sitting there like, oh, shit. That's a punch to the gut. Mm. So I'm like, okay. So that just tells me that I have to make alternative plans, right? Because I'm right. not going to just be stuck in this dead-end job for the rest of my life, you know? Mm. So I was like, you know what? Based on that, I'm like, I'm not going to go later on to my life and be stuck in a dead-end job and be miserable. So, you know, I, you know, in pharma, I learned a lot. My skill set... Um, well, it was improved tremendously because they put a lot of resources in their employees. And so I was like, okay, I, I know I know how this, this works. I, I think I can adapt this. And so what I started doing is I started doing, um, you know, consulting on the side. And then I started doing consulting full time. And, um, you know, I had a couple good projects. And um, at, at the end of one of the projects, a friend of mine was like, yo, Mike, I want to open a wine store. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, wine store. I mean, does wine stores make money? I don't know. I'm like, you know, and this was a section of Flatbush that they call Prospect Leopard's Garden at the time. And so I went there, checked out the location. I'm like, eh, doesn't really excite me. But I'm walking around and I'm like, do these people drink wine? I don't, I don't, I don't know <laughs> if this is going to work. But you know what? The now, what, what, what year was that? This was 2009. This mm. happened 2009. Okay, okay. So in 2009, um, you know, I had been on a farmer for a couple of years and I was just doing consulting full time. And then at the end of the project, it was, the timing was perfect. He's like, OK, I'm ready to go. And I'm like, all right, let's just do it. You know, I'm a risk taker. So I'm like, you know what? I got enough money saved up. I can I can not have to work for six months. I'm good. Let's mm -hmm. just do it. Right. So mm -hmm. we put our money together and we opened up 
and we fucking sold out our first day. We sold out of everything we had. <laughs> we're like, oh shit! Wow. And this and this is was in a, this was in an area where you were you were expecting that you wouldn't sell anything. Right? I had no idea what to expect. The issue right, was right. that the neighborhood was ready for it, but no one knew because there weren't services that were delivering. The, the, the goods that people wanted in the, in the neighborhood. So right, basically, right. you know, had all these people that were wine drinkers and stuff like that, and they would always get their wine from places in the city where they work or whatever like that or online. And so when a place opened up in their neighborhood, they got excited and they came in and supported. And I was like, whoa, wow, this is a good deal. So, I mean, we made our money back our first month. I was like, oh, this wow, is crazy. Wow. <laughs> I like, Yo. And I never looked back since then. It was like, it was like wow, this is absolutely unbelievable. And that's how I got into the industry is like, I mean, it was a great story because most times you get into business, you don't hear stuff like that. But mm. it actually, I mean, it can definitely happen at the right opportunity at the right time. It was a great risk because I, I almost did not take this risk. I was like, mm. ah, I'll just stay in corporate, whatever. Wow. But, man, I mean, it, it, was, it was a blessing because, I mean, mm-hmm. this gives me, has given me the opportunity to, you know, expand, go on my own. And, and, I mean, obviously it was, it was a lot of hard work and everything. But now I'm at the point where... Um, you know, we're, we're constant expansion and, and things are going really well. Mm. So, you know, wonderful. Uh, wonderful. You know, it's a blessing. Wonderful. So now how did uh, how did some of your uh, uh, marketing sales skills that you uh, acquired while working uh, for, for corporation? Uh, how did how did those come into play in uh, growing your business here? Well, the biggest thing really for me was understanding that without sales, you don't have a business. So the biggest thing was really was making sure that you have great customer engagement and great product knowledge. So so in in pharma, you know, you're not a salesman if you don't know your stuff. You don't know your stuff. You're not going to have a job. So, you know, they always test you constantly, make you be on top of your information. So when I got involved in this, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn everything possibly I can. And so when we opened up, I had all the book knowledge and stuff like that. But I was there's one key important ingredient I was missing. And it was, I didn't have the practical knowledge. So even though I had done reading on all these wines from France, Spain, and Italy, and I could tell you this or that, whatever, I actually couldn't really describe the wines because I really hadn't tried them. Mm. So my first review that I got when I opened my first store, they, you know, they ripped me. They're like, oh, this guy couldn't describe the acidity of the wine or anything like that. Anything like that. And I was kind of like, I took it personal because I'm like, damn, <laughs> I work really hard at this. I'm like, hey, this guy's telling me I, I didn't, I don't really know about wine. And I guess it's like, all right. So I took that as a challenge. Like, okay, I'm going to go to all these tastings, these trade tastings, and I'm going to learn the practical knowledge stuff. Mm. And so, you know, from 2009 up until now, I'm, I can tell you I've probably tried at least 40,000 different wines. Mm. So, wow. you know, I got a, I got a strong palate. I got a you know, strong sense of smell, taste, profile. And, you know, and I can memorize a lot of that stuff too. So being in pharma really helped me. Uh, focusing on learning, you know, information and, and being credible. So if you don't know something, you know, don't don't try to fake and say you do. Right, so you right. don't know something, and, and it's fine because not everybody knows everything, and you can um, look it up and get back to that person. Well, like I like to tell uh, uh, a lot of young people that I meet that uh, the quickest way that you can learn anything is to say, when a question is asked, I don't know, because once you say I don't know, that opens the door to knowing. So, you know, that's, that, was, that was great that you did that. And then obviously, uh, you know, like you said, you, you augmented your knowledge from reading by going to the actual wine tastings. And uh, beyond that, 
you got to augment your knowledge by actually going to the places where the wine is is grown. Oh, such a huge difference, <laughs> right? man. Beginning to go to these vineyards and wineries and meet to these winemakers and owners and stuff like that and just the cultural exchange there is is, is priceless. Exactly, it really is. Right, it's right. priceless, you know. And there's not many people that are in this industry that that look like me either, too. So when I come there, it's, you know, people are like, wow, you know, they're really excited to meet me and, and learn learn the much a stuff a bunch of stuff about me and everything. And so, you know, going to um, you know, places like in Italy or Spain, whatever like that, the the cultural exchange is is just amazing and also learning about the different cuisines that they have and um, you know, like for instance I went to Galicia, you know, where like the area where they grow Albarino and going around in, into the the the, um, the inlets there because they're right off of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, they, they harvest oysters, mm. clams, mm. and mussels there. They have these, these huge platforms that just harvest that stuff. And you go in there and you, and you see dolphins moving around in the, in the bay, you know. And I've been a lot of places. I've never got to see dolphins up that close. It was amazing. Mm, mm. Well, that, that goes right back to uh, another one of the things that I, I mentioned to young people that, uh, that I meet is that uh, uh, education, which is where you began, uh, you know, and, and and went on to work in the corporate America, and now you're traveling the world and and and, and uh, uh, selling wine and enjoying wine as a lifestyle. So I'd like to say that education, once again, uh, can take you wherever you want to go. And then in your case, you've been a witness that education can also take you to some amazing places that you never imagined. Absolutely, you know? absolutely, <laughs> right? right. So yeah, the traveling is awesome. I mean, it's just. You know, sometimes I pinch myself because, you know, being my own boss now, it gives me, you know, time to take vacations and not stress out too much, you know. And it's like, okay, I, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at my last day of vacation, whatever. No, I don't have to worry about that. Like, right, you know, exactly. Right. You don't you have know. to rush back and you can enjoy no. it. You can enjoy where you're at. No. Like if and, I go and, to, you know, if, I, <laughs> if I'm going to go to Italy, I'm, I'm going to go for two weeks. I'm right, gonna sit right. There and go for five days. No, I'm going to go there for two weeks. <laughs> and you're going to enjoy it. And I'm going to enjoy, enjoy it. And too. not rush and come back and, and have a good time going both ways. Right. right. I'm not going to say I'm not going to be stressed because there's going to be some parts, you know, something, there's always something goes wrong, right? So it's like, all right. But, you know, I have a big staff, so, and they're, and they're pretty good. So they handle most, most, most issues. So. Okay. That's good. That's wonderful. So now uh, looking forward uh, from your, your uh, locations you have here in Brooklyn, and your wonderful uh, Bedvine brand, uh, how do you see yourself uh, perhaps growing your business in the near future? So right now, I think we are really good as far as brick and mortar locations. We don't really need any more locations right now. Um, you know, they both expanded and they're both doing really well. I think that the way to expand f for me would be is maybe having some of our private labels go, um, go multi-city. Okay, wonderful. Um, national and i also think doing some international events like you know i, I think that um you know I, I would like to you know try to do maybe an annual party and in, uh, in lagos because you know some of my partners are nigerian and i'm part nigerian so I'll do something in lagos maybe something in south africa mm. you know and maybe we can do something out in la you know you never know <laughs> cool but um you know it's it's, it's more doing more international outreach is the way I think we're going to expand. Mm, mm. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so now as a uh, as a entrepreneur, uh, what advice would you give to uh, people in the audience that are, 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 let's say somebody that's been working somewhere 
for eight years or 10 years or 12 years. And, you know, they make a good living, but they're, they're wanting to stretch and spread their wings and try something a little different. What would you say to them in terms of dealing with that transition from uh, working uh, in a corporation to being your own boss as you've done? What would you say to them in terms of making that leap? Well, I would say the transition is definitely going to be one of the most difficult things you're going you're gonna to do, right? You know, for me, it worked out, but it, it definitely wasn't easy, you know, saying it's going to take some time. Um, and, you know, I would say that you have to be conservative at times and sometimes you have to take risks. And I think that if you listen to your inner voice, listen to your instincts and your gut, that will nine times out of ten guide you the right way. So I would say that you have to, you know, listen to your to that inner voice when you make decisions. You know, mm. some things don't look good on paper, but there's some reason there's something that's from some reason causes you some uncertainty or stuff like that. Mm. Listen to that. Mm. You know, that's what I would say is listen to that. You gotta have you gotta have good instincts and you know, and when you when you go out on your own, you know, you have to be prepared to work harder than the next person that's you know coming after you or, or a competitor because you know this is a never changing environment and so you know next person that comes in there you know they're going to sit there and, and they're going to try to um you know copy whatever the leader is and and or make improvements and stuff like that so mm. you have to have vision and be able to anticipate certain things so it, it's not an easy thing but it, it can definitely be done but as long as you can find the energy and the passion to keep getting up every day and putting your best foot effort, then, um, you know, I think you'll be fine. But, you know, it's definitely it's definitely going to be a challenge because, you know, problems come like waves. Right, right, right. You know, it's not the problem. It's how you deal with it. <laughs> right, right. Very good. Very good. OK. In uh, that note, uh, we're going to uh, go ahead and, and wrap up our programming. And as part of our one bottle at a time uh uh, podcast. Uh, one of the things we like to do at the end of our podcast is uh, uh, mention a short story of the day. Uh, and my short story of the day is a short story entitled uh, Thank You, Ma'am. And it's by the uh, Harlem Renaissance writer uh, Langston Hughes. So, Mr. Brooks, if you have a uh, short story you'd like to share with our audience today. <laughs> um, let's see here. Short story. I wish you gave me a heads up. About short story. <laughs> uh, I don't really have a short story right now because um, I could tell a, I could tell one, but it's probably R-rated, so I don't I don't okay. want to okay. do that on this podcast. <laughs> R-rated short story. Okay. Well, maybe you, do you have a do you have a PG version of it or? Mm, <laughs> not politically correct. I'm not going to risk it. I'll tell okay. you off, off mic. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Sounds good. Okay, so once more for our audience, can you mention the wine that we've enjoyed today at our One Bottle podcast? So the wine we have is called Chiretto Classico. And so just think of, think of like nice cherries and mineral. And um, it's from the, the Bartolino area of Veneto, Italy, which is near Venice. So, you know, Venice is actually, I think, the largest wine-growing region in Italy, so that's where Prosecco comes from, and um, you know also Valpolicella, Valpolicella Rapasso, and Amarone. Mm. Um, so it comes from that area there. 
Okay, wonderful. Okay, this has been Ronald Dorsey along with Mr. Michael Brooks of Bedvine in Brooklyn, New York, the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood, saying keep it moving one bottle at a time. Thank you. Thank you. One Bottle at a Time is a production of Sky Palace Music. Everything is gonna be, everything is gonna be alright. Pour me some wine. So I can make it through this lonely night. Oh, pour me some wine. So I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly how I feel. Pour me some wine. Trying to let the whole world, I can let the whole world know the deal.